So, Don, it was so sad that Chris couldn't be with us this week, don't you think? <laughs> but we'll was. just have to yeah. carry on. We will wing it. Oh, well, you'll gosh. probably find someone who can better explain this super complicated study than I can. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by navigating international travel these days. Have you guys traveled internationally since since no. COVID? No. Nope. I did my, my first trip, went to South Africa, and getting home was an exercise in paperwork. The number, you, you got to get a COVID test. It's got to be a certified, you know, by, I had to do like the antigen test, videotaped or, or watched by somebody online that I had to get a record public health record locator this number is in, in the south UK. africa coming back this was for the u.s though so this is required by the u.s required by the u.s yeah you have to have a, a pcr to like a certified pcr test or you can do an antigen test but then it has to be video monitored when you take it so that you can prove that it was really you and you didn't just swab your dog's no- nose or something like that my leopard you're where do you get the test by next you order it online, and it comes with the link to connect to the service. Sent to your hotel in South Africa? Uh, no, I took it with me. Oh. I bought it here. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And they're not cheap. 70 bucks for two of them. Wow. Ka-ching. Yeah. Yeah. So, huh. it. I mean, it was, you know, it was not to the point where I couldn't navigate it all. It was just way more than I was expecting. So, anyway... I am Matt Fox, the complainer in chief from the <laughs> Department of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. Chris, you want to just introduce yourself because you seem to seem to be good at just running with the dialogue. Sure, I'll just follow suit. I'm Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Well done, well done, and Don Thea from the Department of what? Global Health. Global Health. That's me. Welcome, Don. This is Welcome, trend. Chris. Good Not significant, everyone. though. Good to have everyone back in the studio two weeks after the last time we were here. And Chris definitely didn't start to introduce the study last week, this week. Right. I wouldn't do that. And uh, as our usual reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find BU's Hub for Lifelong Learning, all kinds of population health tools, programs, games, lotteries. I don't know. What else you find on there, Nick? Pachinko. Pachinko. When was the last time Pachinko came up in conversation? Pachinko is the game where the pins and you drop the the balls down coin and they follow a normal distribution. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. 1991, I suspect. Wow, don't know why 1991, but okay. Anyway, let's uh, move on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the impact of the HPV vaccine on cervical cancer rates in the UK. Just realizing now we're having a very UK-themed couple of weeks. Then in our second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the dangers of meta-analysis using the ivermectin story, which I just find to be the most depressing but also fascinating story. It really is. I mean, I suppose it's similar to the hydroxychloroquine in a, in a lot of ways. But boy, the number of people that I see online who are devotees it's of nuts. ivermectin. I got one thing to say to you, man. What? Albendazole. It's coming. Albendazole? Oh, God. Like, it's another anti-parasitic drug. You think that's going to be the next? Oh, man, like, albendazole totally treats COVID. Really? I'm sure of it. Yeah, I've got every reason to believe that there's precedent. I thought Rogaine was the next, going to be the next. (laughs) Does that treat parasites? (laughs) No, I don't know. I don't know. We seem to be plumbing the the anti-parasitic line pretty pretty aggressively here. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud. So... 
segment one, we're talking about an article on the impact of HPV vaccination on cervical cancer rates, published in The Lancet and entitled The Effects of the National HPV Vaccination Program in England, UK, on Cervical Cancer and Grade 3 Cervical Intraepithelial Neoplasia Incidence, a Registry-Based Observational Study, thereby proving me wrong last week when I said that it was the longest title ever. So I guess the, the Lancet just has really long titles. So. I hadn't, hadn't been paying much attention to that. But anyway, by first author, Dr. Milena Falcaro of the Cancer Prevention Group at the School of Cancer Pharmaceutical Sciences at my semi-alma mater, King's College of London. Mm. I went there for a year. Mm. Does that count? Are you, you regal now? I am. Are you, were you, did you become king? I I, I don't want to, graduation. I don't want to, I don't want to brag on on the air, so we won't talk about it. So uh, here are some headlines for this one. Yahoo says vaccinating girls against HPV dramatically reduce cervical cancer rates in the UK, comma study finds. CBS News says HPV vaccines slash cervical cancer rates up to eighty seven percent, study finds. And MSN says cervical cancer rates are down by eighty seven percent thanks to HPV vaccine, but will this Proof that vaccines save lives sway anti-vaxxers. No. I totally agree with you. You <laughs> have to ask that question. Clearly no. It, it doesn't matter it, what it, it is. And that is why they asked the question. Even if they had like the vaccine that prevents death from all causes, yep. they're they going to be, be opposed to it, it because they of would, the side effects. Because, <laughs> <laughs> Which is like life. <laughs> Chief black box warning, vaccine prevents death. <laughs> May cause life. May cause life. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Chris, you wanna you wanna walk us through this one? I know that you found this one very simple and straightforward. Oh, so why don't you just my goodness, simple and go straightforward it. it was not. Yeah, like, especially is, the analysis section. Would you do, go oh, deeply into that one? Yeah, I, go line by I'm line gonna, reading. I'm please. gonna ask Matt to to explain some of the methods here because Age this period, was very complicated. Effects. This is very complicated study, but it's a very it was a very good study, very powerful study. They you know were basically trying to address the the, the problem that has has really bedeviled the. the cervical cancer, the HPV vaccines from the very beginning, which is that that the evolution of cervical cancer takes 10 to 20 years. And so how do you prove that, that even though there's sort of these strong, strong epidemiologic links between HPV and cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, which is like a precancerous lesion, and even though we, we have seen observationally that the precancerous lesions do tend to sort of build on each other and eventually will lead to, to cervical cancer. So the model of the evolution of the disease makes it very plausible that by intervening at the beginning, you could stave off the, the the endpoint. But the fact remains that directly proving that HPV vaccines prevent cervical cancer has been hard to do because it takes 10 to 20 years after the introduction of the vaccines to see that effect. But now we have finally arrived at the bus station. Now we the sufficient has, time has, has elapsed that we can actually start to do these analyses. And and and, and the results are, are, are increasingly definitive, I would yeah. say. So, you know, two years ago, I think, in, on episode 18, I believe it was, of this very podcast. Wow, good memory. We looked at this Scottish study that they reference here as being an example of where the precancerous states, the CIN 2 or 3, were significantly reduced when this was introduced into Scotland. And we were very excited about that because it seemed like this was moving towards the final step. Now we have uh, two studies, one in the New England Journal of Medicine last January, mm-hmm. done in Sweden, mm-hmm. and this study. I both it was of which, three years ago. No, uh, was it, it was three, three semesters. Three semesters, three semesters ago. ago. In fact, that's as I count joke. them, that was this semester and last semester. So that sounds before. like two semesters. <laughs> <laughs> 
There was a preprint. <laughs> oh, I see. This I is, see. This is an inside joke. So, so now we have the, the, this, the, these two studies, and they are the, the thing that chiefly distinguishes the Sweden study from this study is that in Sweden, it was Gardasil, which is a then I think was a four valent vaccine is now a nine valent vaccine, but the, the differences are not all that important. Va- valent meaning <laughs> meaning number that of it covers strains. The different strains, right? So it's the nine most important ones. But the truth is that that seventy percent of, of cervical cancer is caused by two strains. Sixteen and so eighteen. So as long as you get sixteen and eighteen, you know you've you've done mm-hmm. most of the work. Mm-hmm. So where Cervix focuses on sixteen and eighteen, mm-hmm. and the British use Cervix, the Swedes used Gardasil. So other than that, the two analyses are quite similar because they're not randomized controlled trials because you can't do a 10-year randomized controlled trial. What you have to do is at the end of 10 years, once you sort of reach this point where, you know, you're starting to see that the natural history of the disease is such that you might start to see effect, you do a massive database search to try to match up the apparent vaccination status of the cohort as they were 10, 15 years ago with cancer incidents now. So to do that, you need two things. One is you need to know what were the policies at the time in terms of the offering of these these vaccines. And the second thing you need to know is what the cancer results, the diagnosis was. So for the latter one, which is a little bit easier, they use the British Cancer Registry. It's got a name. I don't know what the, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. They have a comprehensive registry. The way that they sort of set up their analysis was was somewhat clever, I thought, where they, they looked basically at two periods in time within which they were able to carve out different cohorts based on age. And what they were trying to do effectively was to say, you know, we we know that in theory, vaccines like Gardasil or Cervarex are going to work best if they're given to women, young girls, in fact, prior to the onset of sexual activity, because if you can prevent HP infection in the first place, then, then that's the most effective way of preventing, you know, CIN or cancer. And so they, they but the way that the vaccine was actually introduced is that they, they, they started using this, I think in 2004, mm-hmm. was it? And they initially offered it to girls who were 12 or 13 years old, and also did a catch-up campaign for older girls. And their hypothesis was that the effect would be strongest in the young girls and less pronounced in the older girls because you're not actually staving off HPV, HPV in the first place. And then they went to an, a slightly older cohort, basically repeating this experiment under the sort of the pseudo assumption that these girls would have been offered and would have received vaccine, even though the vaccine had not yet been introduced. And so by comparing these two these two sets of cohorts, you can draw some inferences about the, the number of, of CIN detections and the number of cervical cancers detected, as well as, you know, working backwards, figure out what was the preventable burden of both of these two syndromes. And could you just say what CIN is? So CIN is the precancerous version of cervical cancer. It stands for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, which is... Which is maybe, you know, in the breast cancer parlance, we would call that like carcinoma in situ, which means like sort of an early, not particularly malignant version of this cancer that if left unattended may eventually evolve into the the, the life-threatening proper cervical cancer. And CIN is graded in, into very mild, CIN1, to increasingly severe up to CIN3, and after CIN3, it becomes cervical cancer. And so they, they were looking at these two sort of important outcomes, recognizing that CIN3 is very common, whereas cancer itself is, is, is about tenfold less common. And so that's, that's the advantage in looking at both of these. And, and what they found was, you know, the, the, the math behind this was, I have to say, extremely complicated. But there, there was a piece of this method that really resonated with me. And I want to actually sort of state this, which is that one of the challenges to studying 
the impact of a vaccine on on cancer is that the behavior of vaccine uptake is so confounded by many things like religious beliefs and sexuality and economics and education. And all of those things are obviously going to have an effect. So like comparing people who chose to have a vaccine from those who didn't choose to have a vaccine is fraught because the two populations are bound to be completely dissimilar. So that is true. But on the other hand, the process of offering a vaccine, which is what they're actually analyzing here, because in this study, they did not actually confirm that people had received the vaccine. They're only working under the assumption that they were offered the vaccine and had the opportunity to say yes. And the contrast with vaccine uptake versus vaccine offering is that those individual labile behavioral confounders don't apply because it's the system that we're now looking at rather than the the individual who accepts it. And so taking that assumption as being a rather important caveat that they didn't have individual level vaccination status, they're only looking at these populations, they were then able to draw these inferences. And what what they found in both cases was a really profound reduction in both the CIN and the cervical cancer incidence. And that as predicted, the most benefit was was achieved when the vaccinations were given earlier in life in the 12 and 13 year old girls. So, you know, combined with the, the you know, the Scotland study, the Sweden study, and now this British study, I think the evidence is, is becoming almost, you know, unimpeachable that these vaccines are highly effective at reducing cancer. And so this is, this is, this is powerful. But of course, it, it's not over, because there are all sorts of sort of like secondary, I, I hate to use the word again, pragmatic questions. For example, there's a movement towards the use of a single dose of Gardasil and whether, yeah. or, or Cervarix, as opposed to the three-jot series as they're currently licensed, which would, you know, make the access to the vaccine globally far more mm-hmm. practical. So, so I thought this was a great study. I, I was intrigued by it. I found the, the methodology to be bewildering and daunting. <laughs> and I'm hoping you'll have something more, more sophisticated to say, Matt, but, but that's the gist of it. I thought it, it was, seems like it worked well. I thought it was elegant and sophisticated. Thank there you. we go. Thank you, sir. Just to be specific here, so there was about an 87% reduction in cancer incidence and a 97% reduction in CIN3. So a substantial reduction. Really powerful. The other thing I wanted to just read again is the title, which was the effects of a national HPV vaccination program. So just getting to what you were pointing at, Chris, which is this is not the effect of the vaccine. It's the effect of the vaccination program. It's more like an ecological study, really. It, it is an ecological study. In fact, it, these are not, it's one of the comments I had, these are not individual level effects. These are population level effects, which comes with some potential challenges. But so, so as you say, the, the benefits here are that you don't have to deal with the individual level confounding because people who take the vaccine and people who don't are going to be very different. And it's going to, you know, maybe you can tease it out, but it's, it's hard to do. But just, you know, evaluating the effects of the policy is not confounded in that way, but it is confounded by potentially by any time trend. So if, you know, if, if independent of the vaccine, HPV was just starting to disappear, that would be wrapped up with the policy. But it's hard to make the argument that the HPV was declining at the point that we would have seen a 97% reduction or an 87% reduction in cancer independent of the vaccine. So I, I, yeah. the story holds together really, really I, well. And I was thinking, you know, because we often go through this exercise of saying, like, if there is bias, in which way would the bias go, yeah. right? And, and I, here I we have to say, to like, that. you know, the people who are most likely to refuse the vaccine, I mean, I don't know what their, their risk of getting 
you know, exposed to HPV would be, maybe it's much lower. I don't know. I, I actually I truly have no idea where that, which direction that goes. But if we said, for example, that those who are most likely to refuse the vaccine are the ones who are most likely to be exposed to the virus, let's like take the worst case scenario, then these results are conservative. Oh, I I, mm-hmm. I I would agree. I mean, I think there are, we, we'll, we'll get into it, you know, because I think there are a number of ways this could go, a number of issues that come up that are minor, but, you know, could come up. But I agree with you on that one. I, I think you're absolutely right. Don, your, your, your take on this study, did you love it as much as Chris did? And did you read the methods section over and over and over? <laughs> yes, <laughs> very clear yes methods and, section. Yes, yes. Lovingly. <laughs> yes and yes. Yeah, no, I, I thought that this is, you know, the third in a triumph of really important studies. And we can... We can eradicate cervical cancer, probably, from the face of the earth. It'll take a huge effort, but, I mean, we now have the tools, and this is one yeah. of the most amazing tools. One of the most, one of the most efficacious vaccines amazing. just in terms of getting rid of HPV, not much less CIN or, 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 or cancer. I thought, I thought it was sort of interesting the way they—and it's in the method section. I didn't dive too deeply, but I thought it was kind of cool the way they dealt with two— different scenarios that would affect ascertainment of cases. And one was that when, apparently in England, there is a first cervical examination in girls at around, I think, the age of 13 or 14. And so there's a systematic surveillance for cervical pathology. And they had to account for there being an excess number of cases that would be found during that period of time because those particular girls, whether they've been sexually active or not, had some period of time to actually be exposed and develop cancer. So they had to adjust for that. And then the other thing that they had to adjust for was what they're, they call the Jane Goody effect. Yeah, that was very was interesting. Really, really interesting. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and apparently there was this young woman who became an internet star. She was, I guess she was, she became very, very famous in Britain because she was on a series of those reality TV shows. And she was very, very controversial and really made a name for herself that was both positive and negative. But she came down with cervical cancer and and died rather quickly at the age of 27. And because of the visibility of th- that particular issue, mm-hmm. there presumably were secular trends and how many women went and had, you know, had a uh, screening. Yeah. The screening and that, rates went way, way up. Yeah, as you would expect. And they had to account for that because this was an evaluation of a program, not an eva- evaluation of individuals. The last thing I wanted to say is that is that it's even more important because we're now seeing a an absolute epidemic of head and neck cancer in young men or middle-aged men. And that goes along. That's also due to HPV. It's also due to serotype 16 and 18, as well as penile cancer and anal cancer. So it's not just cervical cancer that we need to focus this on. So we, we need to also expand from women to men Absolutely. or girls to boys, because not only are you going to get a yet unproven, but very likely beneficial effect in terms of head and neck cancer and penile cancer and anal cancer, but you're going to get more bang for your buck because you're going to get herd immunity. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to right. achieve herd immunity much more readily if the entire population is immunized to, to HPV than if it's if it's just the female part of the population. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 this is a great study. Totally yeah. agree. You brought up the issue of herd immunity. So they did these calculations to try and say, okay, based on what we know about the effectiveness of the vaccine and the 
the uptake of the vaccine over time, what are we going to expect that we're going to see in terms of benefits? And the benefits that they anticipated were in the range of say 60 to 70 percent with lower depending on the you know the year of the the cohort so what they anticipated was lower than what they actually observed they observed an even larger effect now mm-hmm. some of that could be some some amount of bias i mean there, there there probably is some in here but i also wonder do you think this is you know their, their simple calculation wouldn't have accounted for herd immunity and That's i right. do wonder whether some of that is you're not only seeing the benefit to the individual, but you're seeing the benefit to all of those people that this is not being passed on to from you know the onward transmission. So I, I you know I'm not sure if that's what's going on, but it seemed to me plausible. I want to extend that because the the issue of herd effect, like to say you know Matt Fox is is vaccinated and therefore Matt Fox does not infect Christopher Gill or Don Thea, sort of the classic example of herd immunity. But there's another way of looking at this too, which is like what is the conjoint probability of my getting infected if you are vaccinated and I am vaccinated and we are interacting. So that there's like, but the you know the the randomized controlled trials done by Pfizer or Moderna or any of these large trials cannot answer that question. They're only looking at what happens to Matt if Matt is vaccinated, but not like what happens if a network of people are, are vaccinated, where you would in fact imagine that the, the effect of the the vaccine would be even higher, distinct even from herd effects. So I I, I think that you know and 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 now I'm just like. You know, the more we talk about this trial and the complexity of this trial, the more sort of my hats off to these people for figuring out a way to go back and and come up with a a, a really rigorous approach to measuring ultimate impact in terms of cancer from an event that occurred. 10 to 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that is so difficult to do. So, you know, bravo. I would agree. So so the one, I want to go back to the issue that you raised, Chris, which is the issue of, of you know, whether the, the potential biases in here would be quote unquote conservative or, or not. And I think the one you raised would certainly be conservative if we define conservative as Meaning the effects would in fact even be greater if you accounted for it. The the one the one that I do wonder a little bit about is under registration in the later cohorts. And the reason I say that is, and this is this is just based on my experience, this has nothing to do with the UK data or this particular issue, but I have just found every analysis that I have ever done in cohorts using data that's sort of routinely collected like you know these would be data appears later than you expect it to so you think you know the year is up and you've got all the data on all the all the cervical cancer cases that happened in that year and then you go download the data again a year later and you find there were more cases in the year before than you you had previously and it's you know it's coding issues it's getting the things so it is plausible to me that they missed some of the cervical cancer cases in those very late cohorts but again, not enough that I would be concerned about something, you know, th- th- changing these results dramatically. But it is just sort of one of those things that I don't know. You're nodding, Chris. So I'm guessing you've had this experience as well. Well, yeah, we were. We, we just published a set of papers about COVID-19 incidents in different populations, and we'd written two. Like the two companion papers were published ahead of the main effects paper, and the numbers don't quite add up. And it's mm-hmm. exactly this phenomenon that that the things sort of trickle in at the end, and when you finally get to the tallying, you're like, you know, you're off by a little bit. Yeah, so. and, and sometimes it's you're you're off by a, a reasonable amount. Like in your case, it was you know, it's probably just data collection and timing. But with this sort of registry based stuff, I mean, I'm sure it's pretty regimented and it works really well. And at the same time, like I look at the look at the COVID data and you look at these COVID websites, and all the time they are revising the data back in time. And so you know, these sort of things happen. And I suspect there's some of that going 
going on here as it's well. Like the unemployment statistics. Exactly. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Why do they do that thing where before the day that they're going to release these reports, they interview a whole bunch of quote experts I about know. what they say the reports are going to say, right. and they're usually completely wrong, and they never go back and say we reported at nine a.m. that it, we're going to have six hundred thousand jobs, and we only had two hundred thousand jobs, and now there's like egg on faces all across the economics, the macroeconomics community. They never go back and point out that the experts were completely wrong. But they also but they ask them again next time. But they also revise last month and the month before and the month before. So they're now constantly they're right. revi- revising them. So it turns out actually the experts were right, even though the report was wrong. Who knows? Either way, the whole thing seems wackadoodle to me. Yeah. So the other thing I think that is worth noting is these effects are huge. They do have moderately wide confidence intervals around them, but these are these are big effects. And these are early effects. I mean, this is not lifelong. This is the 10-year, the I think, roughly, effect. Right. We haven't seen nothing yet. We, we, there's still more benefit probably to be gained. Or, and not, or so, not. Or not. Go ahead. Say I more mean, about it, that. I mean, it, it could be that the, be, the benefit is most pronounced in the beginning. And with waning immunity, like we're seeing with COVID, it could potentially wear off. And, you know, if you could be protected in your teens and early 20s, and if the immunity wanes and you're not boosted, we have no idea what the immunology on this thing is over time, You and you get exposed in your 20s or 30s, you might develop cervical cancer in your 40s or 50s. Yeah, it's a good point. I suppose that's true. I, I guess I was assuming that probably most of the transmission is happening earlier, that there is still obviously transmission happening in the you know 30s, 30s, let's say, and 40s, but most of it's happening in the, the late teens and 20s. And therefore... Those who are going to, from the, you know, who, who didn't get the vaccine in their, you know, teens may go on to develop cervical cancer later on into their 40s and maybe even in their 50s. And we're not picking those up yet because mm-hmm. we just haven't followed those women long enough. But but I, I take your point. I mean, we really don't know about the, the immunology. It could be that it could be that, you know, you get infected early on in uh, during your teen years and the you know if you were sexually abstinent for 15 or 20 years like with malaria your immunity could wane and then you could get infected again and you know that that may be an issue or it could be that constant reinfection is required to maintain a level of immunity that that isn't you know isn't mm-hmm. the same as with a with a vaccine so we mm-hmm. we don't know good i mean point. this is really really no, important preliminary data but w- this story needs to be told over the course of the next 20 or 30 years too. absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. well among the, the the many so-called facts that are bouncing in my mind from medical school 20 years ago was this statement by i think probably an obstetrician in second year medical school that the vulnerability of the cervix is age dependent that there's a maturation of the squamous epithelial line that that becomes more resilient in terms of protecting the individual against or being resistant to HPV as the as the girls mature. Uh, and so it may be that that this is a counterfact that, that that perhaps what you're describing is being, you know, this could be sort of like a, a you know, a, a reason why HPV vaccines are less effective over time, mm. you know, because of this, you know, loss of immunity over time that might occur with these vaccines. And actually, I have no idea if that's true, hmm. but it could be true. There's still lots to be learned. About Versus, this. you know, maybe it's all about the timing that you, you really want to get to these 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 protect these girls yeah. when that that the cervix is anatomically most mm. at risk. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that again is, I have to say, that is a distant echo of neurons in my brain there. Fair enough. 
All right. Any last thoughts before we move on? Yeah, John, I, you got I, one. I just looked this up, and it turns out that the UK has, beginning in 2019, has offered this vaccine to boys. That's I think that's such a smart which, idea. Which is which is a great idea, and it's it's great that they finally came around to doing that. And hopefully, there's going to be a lot of uptake because we know that the UK has a lot of vaccine hesitancy. But that also means that the data that we just described was not confounded by. You know, immunity from the, the boys. indirect immunity from the boys. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's this right. was a pure, you know, f- girl, woman effect. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely, very cool. All right, let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about an article, uh, more of a letter, I guess, but it's a short article in. And the letter is I. For the letter is definitely I. I for stands ivermectin. for ivermectin. So this was it was in Nature. It was a letter to the editor called "The Lesson." of ivermectin meta-analysis based on summary data alone are inherently unreliable by Jack Clark, Gideon Meyerowitz, Katz, James Heathers, Nick Brown, and Kyle Sheldrick. And I don't know if you know these folks, but these are some of the folks who have been doing a lot of the work on debunking a lot of the stuff around ivermectin, but also doing a lot of the identifying data fraud and things like that. So they've got a real reputation for doing fantastic work, but also that comes along with it, you know, a lot of attacks against them because they're identifying fraud. People who are big fans of ivermectin are pretty upset about that. Now we can get into the main issue of the article, which is they are essentially saying that they, they're, they're setting up the case that there were these Studies done, quote unquote, trials of ivermectin against as a treatment or a prevention, excuse me, for COVID. Prevention or treatment or both? I think, I think both. Yeah. I think people are using it for both. Yeah. And showed, showed a, a, a strong benefit. And then over time, it has come out that most of the studies, most of the studies that found a benefit were, were in fact, fraudulent studies. And they were, you know, these folks identified some of these and some of them just came to light through other other means. And so they're making the case that part of the reason why we weren't able to identify this so quickly is that meta-analyses are based on trusting what is in the published literature, not actually reviewing the individual patient-level data. And mm-hmm. so they're making the argument that unless we do individual patient level meta-analysis, we are always going to be vulnerable to this. So we could, we could talk about that if you want to, but I'm more interested in the bigger picture here, which is, I mean, were we just set up for, for failure here? I mean, we went from hydroxychloroquine to, I forget what the second one was, to, to ivermectin. We keep bouncing through these various, you know, supposedly wonder drugs, of which the research that undergirds them to the extent that anyone ever believed it in the first place often turns out to be fraudulent or and just poorly or poorly, poorly executed in some like, cases like that 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 French study that that touted hydroxychloroquine exactly. turned out to be a terrible study in some cases it's just bad research is this a case where if we were not in an emergency situation if this was not a global pandemic you know we we wouldn't have such a setup for people wanting to commit fraud to generate evidence for something, evidence in air quotes, and we would have picked it up? Or do you think there are every, you know, every one, you know, every drug that's out there has got at least a few studies in the meta-analysis that are fraudulent? I don't, I don't think that's the case. I, you know, I think this is specific to what we're going through now. And exactly. That's so, so politicized that this is how it happens. Politicized is that the science enough that people want to commit fraud. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
bizarre yeah, as well. The, the, the thing, to, the thing that that just I I completely don't understand. I completely don't get. It, it, it has to do with the political nature of this, and that is that those individuals who are casting aspersions at good science are using bad science, but citing it as good science to advance their anti-science agenda. I mean, it just makes no sense at all. I don't, you know, it's... That's it, because you're presuming that they're acting in good faith, Don. Well, no, no, that, no. That's no. what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is, this is really political, but, but, the, but the logic is just so faulty. I just, I completely don't understand it. It's sort of like the West L.A. vegan housewives who absolutely are anti-vaxxers because it's not natural and they don't believe the science, but they absolutely subscribe to the science of global climate change. Mm. You know, how, how can one set of science be correct and the other set of science is incorrect just because it's convenient to what your preconceptions are and what your, your value system is? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, to me, the, the, the thing that is the most distressing is that we are living in this, this convenient anti-science era. You know, I was a Sputnik baby, and to me, science was a religion. It was the truth. And, you know, it was, it was how, it, it was, it, it, you know, it was faulty, and it was not perfect, but it was, it was, a, it was as close to the truth as we were going to ever get. And, and people don't believe that anymore, and I just don't understand it. It just kills mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So do you think that we have set ourselves up for this, though? I mean, hmm. the movement, I mean, we, we, we are here every two weeks looking at studies, Many of which are great studies, and many of which we we look at and we they're debunk. they're not so great. And we you know we feel like it's our role to be honest about that, right? And we had a podcast about this where we were trying to like fall on our swords and say, are we part of the problem? And mm-hmm. and and so I just want like if we set up a system that is really vulnerable to this kind of stuff that we you know the peer review process is not designed to catch fraud. I am not. Mm-mm. I don't Mm-mm. look through studies. Looking for evidence of fraud, I, I go into it assuming that everything is, you mm-hmm. know, it might might not be high quality, but that it is in good faith. And, you know, our systems just aren't designed to pick this up. And so we are incredibly vulnerable to the trends that you're talking about now, where there are vested interests in using science, quote unquote science, against us. And I I share exactly what you just, just described at the beginning, which is that the number of people that I see on Facebook or wherever who are what I would say really twisting science, really cherry picking and really using the language of science by saying other people are cherry picking and, you know, you have no data to support your claim and, you know, here's evidence and then they'll show you evidence that is just a simple time trend or a correlation while simultaneously telling you that your randomized trial Mm -hmm. isn't evidence because Mm -hmm. you don't have you know, you did a vaccine mm-hmm. study, but you didn't get antibody titers on everybody at the end to know that they were actually protected. You know, it's like th- there there is a co-opting of scientific dialogue against science that yes. is really frustrating. Chris? Yes, and, it, and, it's, and it's catering to the people who are actually not particularly familiar with the scientific method, who, who are going to be persuaded because it's, it sounds very impressive. You know, it, there, exactly. I mean, there, there, there are a couple other aspects of this that I, that I thought were really interesting. One of them was that in the, the two meta-analyses that they reference, the first of which was published in the, journal of, the American Journal of Therapeutics as an e-publication only. Mm. And that paper 
you know, included a bunch of studies which were basically a wash showing that ivermectin didn't work and was dominated by one paper that showed an outstanding benefit. And that paper had only been released in preprint and was later retracted by the preprint server because it appeared to be fraudulent. And so, like, here we have a meta-analysis where, where we're not even, like, pretending to, to adhere to good, you know, practices in terms of, of quality selection in studies. I mean, when did you ever see a preprint go as like the driving force behind a meta-analysis? And the fact is that it came out in a third-tier journal mm. that nobody would otherwise read, except in today's hyper-politicized world where people are looking for exactly this kind of evidence that they can cite as being their scientific basis for saying that ivermectin is the way to go. It's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, one thing I would point out is, and I don't, I don't remember specifically what they're referencing there, but one of the big meta-analyses, and they referred to this, reanalyzed their data after the fraudulent studies were pulled and changed their conclusions and they were, they were, you know, they did the right thing. But I agree with you that, you know, those early meta-analyses were, were very influential and it's hard to, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. That's right. The other thing that I, I, I find so ironic about this constant quest for an alternative to vaccines, where we're so afraid of vaccines because of the uncertain long-term side effects of these vaccines, which is like such a frustrating argument because, you know, if you say, well, I don't trust a vaccine until we have 10 years of safety data, then, well, I guess we got to wait 10 years Mm -hmm. for the safety data. And there's no shortcut there, right? Nope. Uh, There's no meta-analysis you can do on that one as far as, unless it's the Journal of Time Travel. Oh, I like that one. I mean, maybe we should start that. But anyway, like the, the... the passion behind ivermectin or azithromycin or azithromycin hydroxychloroquine is, yep. is so outside the you know the plausible magnitude of these drugs, which you know, as far as we can tell, really have no benefit. And at the same time, there's like a complete like absence of of agitation or advocacy. In fact, it's like the the crickets are chirping around the very effective drugs recently licensed being licensed by Merck and Pfizer that reduce mortality by 90% right. actually work. Right. And no one is saying a thing right. about right. that. But they're right. making a huge amount of money off of it. You're not hearing about ivermectin <laughs> because they can't make money off of it. Oh, that is what right. I, that is what you see. I mean, Merck, Merck is uh, definitely not into making money on ivermectin, but of course they want to make money off of COVID drugs. I know. Do you think that it's this whole weird. thing is being driven by the anti-vaxxers. I do. Yes, I'm afraid I, I do. do. I mean, I think I think there is there have been studies that most of the the vaccine misinformation it propagates from a very limited 17 12 people. people. Very limited no, resources. 17. And oh, they are and they are making it. money off of yeah, yeah. selling, you know, supplements and all sorts of Prevagen. But, but, Prevagen. but they're all selling Prevagen, Don. But why? <laughs> oh, please don't get me started. <laughs> but what what, what what I don't understand is 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 why this you know this this thing has become a rallying point for a whole host of non virulent anti-vaxxers you know the whole Republican party just about has taken this up and you know whether it's hydroxychloroquine or whether it's azithromycin or whether it's ivermectin it's not just those 17 people or it's not just the you know the wackadoodle anti-vaxxers it's a huge segment of the population I can understand it with all of the all of the acts that are happening now to undermine democracy because I understand what the secondary gain to under, undermine democracy is for the Republican Party at this point. I'd, I, I don't understand what the secondary gain for the Republican Party or all of those non-pure anti-vaxxers are for embracing this stuff 
It's another uh, cultural uh, wedge issue. That is, that I think is that's what this is. Undermining science. Yeah. You know, I, undermining. Uh, yeah, it's going to backfire. I mean, eventually, I so. it doesn't work. This well, doesn't I last. don't mean for them. I mean for for humanity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Oof. it's like, you know, are they are they are they trying to undermine the laws of physics? Uh, are they trying to convince ooh. Elon Musk that, that that rocket ship's not going to go up in the Maybe. air? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's where this is all headed. Yeah. All right. Well, you can see we are passionate. We're passionate. We're also, I would say I'm a little distraught on this one. This yeah. one this one really really worries me. So, let's get out of the funk and move on to the last segment, which is the amazing and amusing. Chris, what do you got? I'm going to talk about making biscuits because we're coming up to Thanksgiving. Oh, what kind of biscuits are we talking? I'm really talking about cats when they need. (laughs) What? Like British Bake Off? If you've ever had a cat. Yes. No. Many cats do this behavior where they they need. It's like they're kneading the bread. Yeah. They kind of go, and they get really into it, and they purr like crazy, and they just go into a trance, and they need the biscuits. And the British call it making the biscuits, and we call it kneading bread. But the cats probably call it something else. I don't know what it is. But I, my, my cat does this all the time. And, um, you really, really are not talking about biscuits. You're talking about cats. Cats may, needing, making the biscuits. I really thought we were talking about actual biscuits. Yeah, well, I suppose if the, if the biscuit was the biscuit dough was soft and furry and comforting, the cats would, could actually need the biscuits. Okay. But what I was curious about is why do they do this? Why do they do this? Well, I, I, I investigated. Mm. And I came, up with, I came up with a series of theories. One... <laughs> is that they are recreating the, the behavior of making their bed in the wild where they would like go into a, you know, a grassy area and then they would sort of trample the grass down so they can make a little nest to sleep in. Like dogs going in a circle before they lie down. Yeah, like what, that. Why like, do dogs sort of creating, creating the bedding they, space. The dogs before they lie down, they yeah. usually go in a circle. Why? For the same reason. They're making their bed. They're, they're, they're finding... Tapping down the grass. They're really? making themselves yeah. safe. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. And there's some, there's some evidence to, to back this up because it turns out that like people who have like, you know grassy backyards where they don't mow the lawn very often and have cats, that the cats do actually go out into the, into the lawn and trample down little circular areas and sleep in them. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's, there's some theory to that. So I thought, you know, it's okay. So that's one theory. The other one is that perhaps the cats are remembering in some sort of deep way the, the, the behavior to express milk from their mothers, mm-hmm. that they kind of need the abdomen of the mom and mm-hmm. then it creates the milk letdown reflex. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there's some evidence to suggest that too because little kittens do do this to their mothers. And it does it, it release the the milk as as you know as as you would expect. And when the cats do this need making the biscuits thing, if they're sitting on a blanket, they will often suck on the blanket after they do this. Huh. So it's kind of like they're they're remembering the whole process of bonding with their mother. And I, I find that at the same time charming and sad because it's charming because it's it's obviously a powerful, friendly, happy emotion for the cat that they're remembering. And it's sad because they're away from their mummies, and that <laughs> makes me just so want to cry. So. That's the second theory. The, the third one is kind of linked to that. It is that the the cats are trying to because they often need the biscuits on your lap, which is if you have a cat, this is painful, right? Because you don't want to stop mm-hmm. the cat from doing it. Is they're just they're just in in ecstasy, but they're digging their claws into your thighs as they need the biscuits on your leg, and it, it hurts. But the theory is that perhaps this is creating a like a maternal bond with their owner, and then this is part of the sort of like replacement of the actual mother with the new mother. Interesting theories. A more mundane explanation is that they just like it because it's soft and it relaxes them and they just kind of, you know, it feels good. And there's a certain, obviously that that's true because my cat, when he does this, tends to prefer to do this in the sun on a very fluffy pillow. So it feels good. And the fifth one is that cats, believe it or not, have scent glands in their hands. Really? And so part of it is believed that they might be marking their territory by sort of 
putting their fingerprints all over the thing that they, they find so comfortable that they want to own. And one veterinarian who was interviewed on this said that she thinks that this has got a lot to do with kittenhood. And she says that only about one in a hundred adult cats will need the biscuits as opposed to kittens who pretty much universally do this. However, in my personal sample of five cats in my lifetime, Oedipus, Cato, Max, Hercules, and Jackson, named after your son. Oh, come on. 100% of those <laughs> cats not. needed the biscuits, made the biscuits all the way through their lives. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's just because of the insecurity that they feel in the environment that they're living in. Uh, probably because because <laughs> they're 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 not they're not afraid of me that is for sure. My cat is the most in, sort of like bold and un, uninhibited creature you've ever met. His best friend, by the way, is the golden retriever um, Moose. Moose was a puppy, and Jackson already owned the house. And after Jackson, you know, got over his shock and horror at, at a dog being introduced into his territory, and finally came downstairs after about two weeks, they became best friends. And every single day, they play this game of aggressive wrestling, where the dog, who's like 70 pounds, and the cat, who's like five pounds, go at it, full bore wrestling, rolling around on the circles, batting each other, but never actually hurting each other. One day, the cat <laughs> got his claws hooked on the dog's lower eyelid. Ooh. And the dog just sort of paused Ooh. in the middle of mid-wrestle, right? And then the cat paused, and they both kind of sat down with the, the claws still in, hooked into the, the dog's face. And the cat then gently pulled his claws away and then licked the dog's face. Aww. So sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. That's so sweet. It was, it was just charming. Huh. Okay. So we need to have a very, very long discussion about how this all came about, this whole piece uh, you just did there. You sat try. down today... At some point last night, last night, and you just thought, "I'm gonna figure out why cats make the biscuits." That's that is. Are you written up in any textbooks anywhere? <laughs> there is got to be a case There's study. Normal psychology. There's an ICD-9 code. To go. A case study <laughs> that is Chris Gill. Wow. Well, you set up mine perfectly because I am doing the same thing I did last time, which is, as I said, you know, I love. When people commit to a, a bit, when academics commit to a bit, and this is a tweet that was sent out by Severine Lamont, and the tweet says, "When your mentee at Patrick Owen PhD loses the plot and makes your lockdown day, this paper is going to be highly cited." And she then includes the paper that he made. Our cat's good, which is entitled "Our cat's good." An important study. <laughs> and I'm going to read you the study. Introduction: A cat is a four-legged creature. Purring is odd, but most people could just deal with it. Asking too many questions regarding purring is not recommended. No studies have examined if cats are good. Therefore, the aim of the current study was to determine if cats inherently are good. Methods. This was a consensus opinion study between two scientists. Both were asked if cats were good. If consensus was not achieved, a series of egg and spoon races were held <laughs> each Sunday morning until opinions aligned. Sensitivity analysis are a good idea, but beyond the scope of this paper. Results. Collectively, 100% of opinions suggested that cats were good. I love it. <laughs> no egg and spoon races were held. I, I just love it when, you know, people commit Science. to the bit. You know, comes to a definitive solution at last. They they did, and it follows on perfectly I from love your I love it. cat musings, which really I we're going to have to talk about in detail when this is over. Fair enough. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you have a 
study that you want us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or Don at, at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and the Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler for sound editing. And Nick, I wanted your feedback because you have cats. Was he, is, he, is he on the right? Which theory do you think is, is the most likely of Chris's? Oh, you think cats are good? Yeah. Well, like you, cats. you have cats. We've seen your cats. Or cat? Cat? One cat. Anyway, thanks for, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Bye.